Okay, so uh, today is our our final uh, passage in, in the book of James. So we ha- we finish the book of James today. This is the last time I'm preaching on James. Uh, some of you may be more thankful than others uh, about that. Um, both last year and this year, uh, we've taken our time going through this book together. Uh, and I hope you can say this afternoon that if you've been with us in, in any part of that, uh, you've been, I hope you've been challenged. I hope you've been changed by what God's Word says in the book of James. Uh, the thing I've been really struck by as we've just taken time over the last two years to dig into to God's Word uh, in James is the fact there's no wriggle room when it comes to the imperatives that he presents us with. So James constantly is, is calling us to live a certain way, to be this person, to do this. And he does it with clarity. He does it with certainty. Um, he does it really believing that we can do this in the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, you and I can't. It's impossible for us to read James, all that James says to us, all that he calls us to be. And then in response to that, present God with a bunch of different excuses as to why it is we can't do it. Uh, when the Word of God speaks to us and we listen to what it says, we understand what it says, then our only response to what the Word of God says is one of surrender. That's the reality. So when we hear James and all that he challenges us with, we have to surrender to that Word. And as I say that, I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 9.20. Paul says this, On the contrary, who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Will what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Uh, and in the same way, who are we to look at what James writes in his book? It's not a long book, but he unpacks a number of different realities and truths. And who are we to then look at that or to look at any passage of scripture and then in response say to God, why did you put this in the Bible? I don't agree with this. Who are we to do that? Uh, this afternoon as we come before the final passage in the book of James, my prayer, I hope this is your prayer as, as well, would be this. God, you are the potter and I am the clay. Please ask that you would mold me into something that is a true picture of your word. God, you are the potter, I am the clay. Mold me into something that is a true picture of your word. That's my prayer for each one of us today. So let's take a moment to look together at the final two verses of James. We're going to look... James 5, verses 19 to 20. I'm reading from the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. The words are going to be up on the screen. James says this, My brothers and sisters, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Amen. So Father, we just... Uh, come before you uh, this afternoon and we ask that you would uh, take your word and use it. Pray that you would mold your word into our hearts, transform us and lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, just this, this last week, we had a, a 48-hour prayer time um, in, this, in this space. Uh, so basically, someone turned up every single hour for 48 hours straight um, and prayed in different areas within this building, within this space. And we had uh, 29 different people involved over the course of the 48-hour period. And I was doing the graveyard shift. So I was doing midnight on Tuesday. That'd be Wednesday, actually. So midnight on Wednesday through to 2 a.m. Wednesday morning. Um, And to be honest, I was sitting just in that back wall there. 
uh, and I was feeling I was feeling quite overwhelmed in my heart. I just felt this kind of oppressive weight uh, on my shoulders, this heaviness of heart, and it led to this kind of cycle pattern of negative thoughts. So just all these negative thoughts uh, were just going off in my head. And I don't know if you've ever experienced that before. You, you go into a time of prayer, and then you find yourself just feeling heavy, and then you find yourself just going into this cycle pattern of uh, negative thought. So I found myself with these negative thoughts, and it felt like these thoughts were getting worse and worse and worse, uh, to the point that I was suddenly aware of what was happening, sitting on that back wall, suddenly aware of what, what am I thinking here? And I said to myself, what is actually going on here? What am I doing? What is going on? And I don't actually know what was going on. It could have been spiritual. It could have just been the flesh. I just know that this was not what God had planned for me during this time. Um, so I stood up, because sometimes, what I would say is sometimes what we do with our bodies is very important when it comes to prayer. So I was sitting down, but I just felt prompted to stand up. And I started just to walk up and down this room. I know it's not a big room, but I just spent time walking up and down. And as I was walking up and down, I just started to pray. And as I was praying, I just started to feel a lot lighter. Uh, and then I st suddenly started to think about this, this week uh, and all that, that God has planned uh, for us. Uh, and suddenly I, I just had this increase of faith, this real expectation uh, that God was going to use this week in a way which would not only transform our lives, but also transform the lives of those who are coming to connect and serve with. I was genuinely excited at all that God might do during a time together. And that got me thinking about ways in which we can reach the good news of Jesus with those who don't know him. And just to remind us, um, or this might be new information to you, but... We have about 70-odd kids coming to the holiday club in the morning. Um, and I think, we'll maybe not mention how many learners are coming, but there's a lot of learners, 100-plus. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity for us to be a, a very practical blessing uh, to our community. So I'm excited. I hope you guys are excited as well. It's just Callum, yeah. <laughs> Everyone else is like. Um, so as I share this... I'm reminded this, mor this morning, this afternoon, uh, of one of our, our key values as a church. So as we think about just underst understanding the reality of what God has done for us and then sharing that with those who don't know Christ, I'm reminded of one of our key values. We are a people who love the gospel. We're a people who love the gospel. And we've spent time over the last few weeks, just at, at the start of each sermon, just looking at one aspect of, of what it is we love as a church. And if we call Denison Baptist Church our home, then we have agreed this before God and before one another. And as we think about what it means to be a people who love the gospel, this is what we have agreed together, and it's up on the screen for us. Uh, the gospel is Jesus Christ, his life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and anticipated return, 1 Corinthians 15, 1-11. It is the truth of who God is and all that God has done for us, applied to our sinful lives through personal repentance. The gospel is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. Romans 1, 16-17. And that's, essentially, that's what we're doing this coming week. Um, we're bringing the truth of who God is to those who are still living in unrepentant sin. And we know that the gospel is power. The gospel is the power of salvation for all who believe. So my encouragement to you is that we would be a people who, this week, who wholeheartedly love the gospel knowing that this is why God made us. God made us to know the gospel, to know Jesus, and then to share the gospel. 
and to share Jesus with those who have yet to encounter him. When I think of the gospel, um, I can't help but think of the story of the prodigal son. Uh, the younger brother said to his father, I want your inheritance now. I want it now. Uh, and what the son meant by that was this. I would rather have your money, your stuff, than a relationship with you. And his father dutifully obliges. He gives him his inheritance. The son takes off. And Jesus says that he squandered his estate and foolish living. So he essentially went on a, a six-month fender. Uh, but trouble catches up with him. Famine hits the land. He has nothing. He ends up feeding pigs. And he's longing to have what the pigs have to eat for their dinner. And then he comes to his senses. And he decides to return home. He, he realizes how ridiculous this is. He's living in this squalor. And he, he reflects on the fact that he once lived in this place of provision in his father's house. And so he has this well-worded plan for what he's going to say to his dad as he meets him again, believing that he is no longer worthy. He's asking his father to be a servant or less than a servant. But Jesus says, but as, his, as, as, as his son was walking towards his house, his father saw him from a long way off. And he was filled with compassion. And that's the essence of the gospel. God is filled with compassion for each one of us. And his father, he ran. He ran towards him. He threw his arms around his neck. He kissed him. He blessed him. And before the son could deliver this well-prepared speech, the father blesses him with a robe, a ring, and sandals on his feet. A fattened calf was slaughtered. A celebration was to be had. For this son of his was dead, but is now alive. He was lost, but he's now found. And this afternoon, I don't know where, you, where you're at as you think about uh, this story. Um, but for me, this is the greatest story ever told, this parable. When we say we love the gospel, our hearts have to immediately be drawn to the story of the prodigal son. This is the gospel in story form. The truth of the gospel is embedded in every part of what, Je what Jesus says here as, as he speaks about this father and his son. And what James speaks of in our passage today is in some ways an echo of the prodigal son. So you'll, you'll get a glimpse of the prodigal son in what James says in verses 19 to 20. Because James here speaks of a someone and anyone who drifts away and then comes back. And then they're coming back, he or she is saved, much like the younger brother in the story of the prodigal son is also saved. So let me remind you this afternoon that this, in fact, was you. This was you. This was every single one of us. This, in fact, may be you right now. We have all, like James speaks of here, we have all strayed from the truth from time to time. We can all relate to the words of that famous hymn, Come, come Thou Fount, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. We can all identify with that. <clears throat> if you're being really honest this afternoon, you'll recognize there's a propensity within us, within all of us, to wander from the truth of God, which in effect is a wandering from God himself. So we cannot separate wandering from the truth of God with a wandering from God. The two go hand in hand. If you walk away from the word of God, in effect you're walking away from God himself. All of which naturally leads us to the first point I want to highlight from these verses in James. 
First point is, is this, the pastoral reality that James presents us with. The pastoral reality. The pastoral reality being what we read in the first part of verse 19. James says this, my brothers and sisters, if any among you strays from the truth, if any among you strays from the truth, and there's something right off the bat that's really important, but perhaps you're maybe completely unaware of, because we don't often think of this way when we think about someone who strays from the truth. You can stray from the truth and you can still attend church Sunday after Sunday. Uh, you can stray from the truth and still be involved in ministry within the life of Denison Baptist Church or any church. You can stray from the truth and deceive everyone around you, including yourself, that you haven't strayed from the truth. We read a verse like this and we think that James is exclusively thinking about someone who's ran off, who's ran away from church, ran away from the Christian faith in a very obvious and explicit way. And without question, this is definitely a part of what James is getting at here. But this is not all of what James is speaking of. So it begs the question of each one of us this afternoon. And before you throw the tomatoes, I'm asking myself this question before I ask anyone else. The question is this, to what extent is your life an accurate picture of the life that God has called you to as you find it in his word? To what extent is your life like a mirror? It's almost like your life is one in which you've jumped out of the New Testament. Does your life look like that, like you've jumped out of the New Testament? Or does your life look like something else? Does it look like you've jumped out of this world? Or maybe a blend of both. You've jumped out of the, the world and the Bible simultaneously. So to what extent is your life an accurate picture of the word of God? That's my challenge. I'm asking myself. I'm asking each one of you today. Do not bypass that question this afternoon. Are you going to get to the end of your life and be filled with regret? Are you going to get to the end of your life and be filled with regret? C.S. Lewis once told a story of probably one of the most difficult moments of his life. He was sitting at the bedside of his own mum as she was dying. She was entering into the last moments of her life. Uh, she sat on her deathbed. She turned to her husband and she said, what have I done for God? And may we not also get to the end of our lives and say, what did I do? What did I do for God? I put on this Christian facade. I said all the right things. <clears throat> I attended all the right things. But in my heart of hearts, I actually strayed from the truth. So that can be one way in which we, we stray from the truth. The other way is that we outright live out the prodigal son way of life. So we outright, outright and reflect something of what we see in that parable. And in doing that, we say to God and to his bride, the church, I want the world more than I want you. And that can be in a moment. And more often than not, that's a gradual thing. On every occasion, it will be gradual internally before it's obvious externally. So what is it that causes us to stray from the truth? Uh, we have an old family friend, and he was a bit of a practical joker when he was at school. Um, it was a hot summer's week in the 1980s. Um, I think the school term was nearly over, and he, he decided to open up one of the air ventilators and put kippers inside. Uh, he thought this would be a great joke. Um, and he did so knowing that the air ventilation system would be turned on when he was in the class, and then this aroma of smelly fish would then pour into the class, and it would just cause this 
horrific moment. Um, and that's exactly what happened. The class was hit with a tsunami of, of fish aroma. And the entire class, including the teacher, ran out for fresh air. Now, as I'm sharing that story, you're maybe wondering what, what on earth am I talking about here? The answer to what it is that causes us to stray from the truth is not kippers. That's not what I'm saying. The answer to what it is that causes us to stray from the truth is whatever we decide will flow into our lives. So for whatever flows into our lives will determine who we are and what we do. So if you put in that air ventilation system, I don't know, like a nice perfume or flowers, then that would be quite pleasant as you sat in that classroom. But kippers, that's a different ballgame. And hear me out, this isn't legalism. As I say what I'm about to say, but it's amazing how easily we let certain things flow into our lives. It's quite incredible. It's the spiritual equivalent of putting kippers into an air ventilator, pressing the on button, sitting down, and breathing it in. Without question, that's going to have an effect on us. Very bad. Our spiritual equivalent to kippers can be so many things. What we watch with our eyes, what we take in with our eyes, uh, what we listen to, where we go, what we decide, who we spend time with. Uh, recently, personally, I've been really challenged by these social media shorts. And I'm not saying this is a sin, so don't freak out. But those 10 to 20 second videos, they just keep coming every time you, you scroll up. And it's a tricky one because some can be really good, some can be really funny. But other times, some of them can be really bad. Um, and we don't know what's coming up. That's a problem. So you just you flick up and you get another 10 seconds or something. Flick up another 10 seconds. And in, in essence, it could be, tying in with this analogy, it could be kipper after kipper. No question, whatever we take in, if it's of the world, it will have a negative effect on us. You know, I've got a friend who stays in Kentucky. I don't know if this is a Kentucky thing or an American thing, but he says garbage in, garbage out. So you, whatever you take in, it's going to then come out in some way. It's going to have an impact. Um, that negative effect, or those negative effects, will then cause us to stray from the truth. It might be obvious, and that we completely disconnect from Christ and his bride. Or it might be this gradual thing. It might be this subtle thing. It might be this spiritual death by a thousand cuts. But either way, the destination is the same. And you've maybe heard before this, this statement, God has a plan for your life. I just want to say to every single one of us today, the devil has a plan for your life as well. God has a plan for your life, but the devil has a plan for your life too. And his plan is one where he wants you to stray from the truth. He wants to take you away from good theology. He wants to push you into bad theology. So much so that you start to echo the question of Genesis 3, did God really say that? And in questioning God and his goodness for your life, you then start to live and act in a way that's contrary to God and his word. So my brothers and sisters, if any among you strays from the truth, and my prayer this afternoon is that that would be none of us. None of us would stray from the truth. We would keep on track. All of which leads to the next point that James makes here in this passage. The church responsibility. The church responsibility. And in particular, the church responsibility it's upon every single one of us in the faith. Let's read verse 19 of our passage again. James says, My brothers and sisters, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, and someone turns him back. Now, what does James mean here? 
when he speaks of someone turning them back. <clears throat> I hope it's obvious to us this afternoon. James is speaking about a person bringing another person back in a sense, but he is bringing them back to truth, from falsehood to truth. The person is no longer living internally and externally for the things of this world because of a love for the world. Instead, the person is living internally and externally for the things of Christ because of a love for Christ. And so if that's what James is speaking of here, then the next question I have to ask is this. How does this come about? How are we able to bring someone back? Someone wanders away, we bring them back. What, what, what takes place in that process? And there's no doubt in my mind, someone bringing another person back to the truth. It's all God. It's a work of God in the person who's bringing them back. And it's a work of God in changing that person in order that that person might then come back. And in that sense, it has to involve prayer. Prayer has to be the, the essence of it, the heart of it. We cannot walk to someone with our feet, reach out to them with our hands and our words, unless we have first sought them, sought for them on our knees. And that makes sense. I mean, to me, it makes sense anyway. Would it not be the case that if you try to bring someone back having not prayed for them first and then regularly prayed for them, then your declaration before God would in fact be this. I've got this, God. You don't need to worry about this. I'm going to look after this. I'll deal with it myself. I'll bring this person back myself. You don't need to bother, God. So prayer is essential. And there's no doubt in my mind that alongside prayer, someone bringing another person back to the truth has to involve friendship. So we need to pray for the person, but we also need to be their friend. There needs to be this relational connection. And the people who might wander away from the truth need to know that the person reaching out to them really does love them and care for them. And he really or she really does have their best interests at heart. And if you're the one seeking to bring that other person back, then God has to be the one who fills you with a love for that person. We cannot muster up affection and love for the person who's running away, who's going astray. The reality for you and I this afternoon is that you cannot manufacture this. It has to be a work of God in your life that then causes you to chase after them, to pursue them. So prayer, friendship, there's also no doubt in my mind that someone bringing another person back to the truth has to involve truth as well. It has to involve the word of God. We have to have the spiritual boldness and the spiritual gentleness to say to someone, okay, I, I see where you were. You were walking with the Lord, but now I see where you are now. You, you've went from here to there. Something's taking place from here to there. And I just want to know what's going on, what's happened, what's caused you to go astray. Is there anything I can do to help? How is it that I can help you understand the importance of coming back to this place of walking with him? You know, this is one of the most difficult parts of being a believer. And this is something that many of us can probably identify with. When you've invested in someone, you've discipled someone, you've welcomed them into your home, you've encouraged them, you've loved them, you've sacrificed for them, you've practically blessed them and helped them in various ways. And for a season, it feels like they're walking in the right direction. And then something, you've got no explanation for why, but something then suddenly shifts, something changes. And they're no longer walking with the Lord. They're no longer growing in the faith. They move from being in Christ and connecting to his bride to suddenly doing something of the world. And from that moment on, the job is clear. If that happens, if you've invested in someone, they're doing well, and then they walk away, 
the job is clear for each one of us. God by his spirit is calling you to, to follow after them, to pursue them, to call them back. And ultimately you cannot make someone come back, but you can chase after them. And you can warn them of the fire that they are about to walk into. We can all do that. God's actually calling us to do that. It's so clear from this passage. So if we understand the what of bringing someone back to the faith and the how, then who is it that should do this? Who should do this? And the answer from James's words here is obvious. All of us. All of us should do this. Um, any one of us who is connected to someone who has wandered from the faith. Um, we don't want to be a church who watches someone wander away and says, oh, that person's going to do that, or this person's going to chase after them. Uh, we want to be a church, when someone wanders away, someone's fallen away, we see them falling away, and we say with confidence and in hope and expectation, I'm going to run after them. I'm not going to wait for this person to do it or that person to do it. I'm going to run after them and pursue them and chase them. I don't know if you know the story of Dunkirk in World War II. Um, it's known as a miracle of Dunkirk, but that's, that's another story uh, about the power of prayer, which we definitely don't have time to look into. But uh, Dunkirk was the evacuation of nearly 350,000 soldiers during the Second World War. So it was mostly British troops uh, were cut off in nor northern France. They were surrounded by German forces in France. Uh, Churchill described it as a colossal military disaster. And it looked like the Allied forces were going to be massacred in the beaches of northern France. And the 26th of May 1940 was declared as a national day of prayer. Such a unique moment in the history of this nation. And on this day, Operation Dynamo began. Uh, Operation Dynamo was basically a rescue mission that involved over 800 naval boats uh, of all shapes uh, and sizes. So basically anyone and everyone who had a boat in the south of England uh, went to rescue these soldiers. So it wasn't just left to these naval ships. Anyone who had a boat was sent. Um, and the last British soldier was evacuated uh, on the 3rd of June. So over 300,000 soldiers were saved. Uh, Churchill was expecting between 20 to 30,000 soldiers saved. And it was these little ships that made all the difference. It wasn't the big naval boats. It was the many small boats. Their size actually meant that many more could be saved. And the mentality of Dunkirk was this. If you have a boat, whatever size it is, go and rescue these soldiers who are about to perish. And our mentality in church has to be this. If you have the Holy Spirit, that's your only qualification. Go and rescue those who, who stray from the truth, those who are about to perish. If you have the Holy Spirit, go. So we don't need a theological degree. We don't need a pastoral title. We don't need to be an experienced Christian. We just need to have the Spirit of the living God dwelling inside us to bring someone back. And this is what will bring someone back from darkness to light. So Dennis and Baptist Church, we cannot miss the fact that James here says someone, this is a responsibility for all of us, not just the pastor or TJ as elders, it's for all of us, every single one of us. We all have our own wee boat. We can all go on a rescue mission and save those who are perishing. And I love what Alec Mottier says in this passage with reference to that word someone. 
He says this, the church had its elders, verses 14 to 15, but they are not named here. Just anyone, anyone that is, who becomes aware of a situation. In other words, the local church is a fellowship of mutual care in which each watches over the other's welfare and the things of God and is on the alert to minister and rescue. So in June 1940 in the south of England, if you had a boat, you rescued soldiers. In July 2023, if you have the Holy Spirit, then rescue the wayward. So you do so out of a love for them, out of a love for God, and out of a love for his bride, the church. All of which brings us on to the final point that James highlights here. Number three, the eternal destiny. So the pastoral reality, the church responsibility, and the final point is the eternal destiny. And in particular, the eternal destiny of those who stray from the truth. So have a look at what we read in the final verse. So we're going to read the whole passage again. James says this, My brothers and sisters, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. James here lets us know what turning someone back entails in verse 20. Turning a sinner from the error of his way. That's what it means to turn, turn someone back, to turn a sinner from the error of his way. And you know, to point someone else's sin out, let's be honest, it's one of the most difficult things we can do. Um, but it's a fundamental part of what it means to be connected to a healthy church. So take a moment, let's just take a moment to look around you. Just look around you for a moment, look at the people who are sitting beside you. A wee exercise here. Okay, I know that's quite awkward. Now, imagine for a moment, just above their heads, you could see all of the sin, all the unconfessed, unrepentant sin going on in their life. So imagine that for a moment. And then imagine we never said anything about it. We could see all this sin, and yet we didn't choose to say anything about it. Would that be a loving thing to do? You know, it's, it's not as far-fetched as we might think. Because this happens from time to time. We see other people's sin. And we don't have the, the spiritual sensitivity, the spiritual guts to then lovingly highlight that out of a desire to see them become more and more like Jesus. Um, I was at a party yesterday. It was quite a fancy party. Um, and there was someone I was talking to who had a bit of barbecue on their lip. Um, just like a, a wee bit of charcoal. It was just a tiny bit, but without question, it was a total distraction. So I don't know if you've ever had those moments when someone's got like half a sandwich ha hanging off her face and they're trying to have this conversation with you and it's really difficult to focus. All you hear is kind of wow, 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 wow. Um, and all you're thinking about is that bit of food. Well, in essence, that's the same when it comes to church relationships. If we see sin in someone else's life, it's very hard to make connection with that person because all we're thinking about is the sin in their life and all we're thinking about is the fact is I'm, I'm not going to tell this person what, what's going wrong or, or what is wrong in their life. So it automatically acts as a spiritual barrier between us and the person that we're trying to connect with. Sin is a barrier. It's a barrier between us and God and it's a barrier between us and the rest of the church family. And I think that tells us something. It tells us that we were made to be holy and we were made to both encourage and admonish. 
And I think that's really, really important. We all have experienced encouragement. Encouragement is a good thing, and we should always encourage. But from time to time, there has to be moments where we do admonish as well. For if we do not admonish and only encourage, then we're giving people a false perception of what church is and who God has called us to be. But we do it in the right way. We speak the truth in love. We don't do it with condescension. We don't do it with condemnation. We don't do it with a harsh spirit. We don't do it in a way that brings shame. Our heart for the person should be the same heart that Christ has for them. And that means we need to ask Christ to fill us with his love so that they might then be brought back to the truth. And that's really the essence of it. We want people to become more and more like Jesus. And take note of the spiritual consequences of doing that. We will save his or her soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. And that's sobering for us because when we see the opposite, when we see the eternal destiny of those who fall away, never to come back, that should compel us to then run after them. Uh, to know that without divine intervention and left to their own spiritual devices, <coughs> this person or that person who walks away has an eternal destiny in hell. That should be what drives us to run to them in love. Don't know about you, but particularly in the West, in our context, um, our love for Jesus, our heart for the gospel, our passion to see the lost saved is so often lukewarm. Um, how often do you wake up in the morning excited to know Christ, excited at the fact you have this relationship with Christ, and excited to make him known to others? We get so caught up in this world and, and the demands that this world brings into our lives that often we don't have the headspace to worship God as we ought to. And so an important component in stirring up our passion for God and his mission is the need for us to have a sober understanding of the reality of hell. We have to understand the reality of what we have been saved from and what others might be saved from as well. Jesus himself says this in Luke 7, the one who has been forgiven much loves much. And I think that what that's saying is when we truly comprehend all that Jesus has done for us and all that we have been rescued from, then we will love Christ and love others as we ought to. And I think the more and more we understand this, the more and more we will become effective for Christ. And as we do that, as James promises here, his or her soul will be saved. Their sins will be covered by the blood of Jesus. So as we close this afternoon, my heart for each one of us is that we would have this eternal perspective. Um, particularly as we go into this week, the reality is <clears throat> we're not doing ministry this coming week. Uh, we're not keeping ourselves busy this coming week. We're not trying to show off on social media this coming week. I hope instead we can look ahead to this week and look back on this coming week as well and say that, that we sought to rescue souls. We sought to save the lost. And the power of the Holy Spirit, as the Spirit has led us. And we all play our part in this. Uh, first off, if, if you're not able to, to attend or connect anything with what we're doing, then you can pray. If you're not involved in some way, then you can pray for us. Uh, and there's going to be opportunity for us to fire out prayer points uh, by email. And if you want to connect with that, then do let us know after the service. Uh, secondly, if you are involved in some or all of what we're doing, we need to recognize that we cannot do this on our own strength. I mean, how silly would it be if we go into this week and think we can do this by ourselves? So the challenge is to remain in him in such a way that we are regularly repentant, constantly, consistently expectant 
and led by his spirit and word and action. And that's all that God is calling us to be as we go into this week. And it's, it's God that determines the fruit. We don't need to work out how many people are going to be saved. It's God who's going to determine all that. So for a moment, I'm going to invite us just to stand. So let's stand for a moment. And we're going to pray and just commit this week to God. And we're going to ask God to convict us of our sin. We're going to ask God to remind us of his promises so that we are expectant and faith-filled of what he might do. <clears throat> and we're going to ask God to lead us by his spirit so that we can keep in step with his will. So, and then after that, we're going to trust God. We're going to trust God with the results of this week. So if you're able, let's stand. We're all standing. Let's pray together. Let's pray. So Father, we, we come before you and we, we ask that you would convict us of our sin and the ways in which we do fall short, have fallen short. I pray, Lord, that we would have clean hands and a pure heart as we go into this week. And Lord, we ask that, that you would continue to remind us of your promises, that we would be expectant and faith-filled of all that you might do in this week. Lord, we pray that we would be sensitive to your still small voice. We would be led by you in every word we speak and every action we make. And Lord, we trust you with the results of this week. We ask that you go before us and work in and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.